Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Tham. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. In this episode, we profile activists protesting the decay of free speech under Aung San Suu Kyi's government in Myanmar. We examine the rapidly disappearing street food of Bangkok amid the Thai government's attempts to clean up the city's sidewalks. We speak to a journalist who covered the earthquake and tsunami which devastated the city of Palu in Sulawesi. And one of our editors talks about the awkward relationship between the mainstream media and freedom of the press in Singapore. When Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy was elected to power in Myanmar in 2016, many expected to see an increase in freedom of expression. But the rise in the number of journalists and activists harassed, arrested, or even imprisoned has left many disappointed. Amid concerns over the decay of free speech in the country, a growing number of activists and organisations are fighting for freedom of expression. In Yangon, Victoria Milko speaks to some of these activists about the challenges they face and their hopes for Myanmar's future. In mid-September, freedom of expression activists held a demonstration in downtown Yangon, calling for Myanmar citizens to hold the government and military accountable and to give freedom of expression a chance to flourish in the country. The demonstration came weeks after Reuters journalists Wa Lone and Cha Sao were sentenced to seven years in prison under the colonial-era Official Secrets Act. The demonstration's participants are a part of a handful of people in Myanmar fighting for freedom of expression something they say has been in decay since Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy took power two years ago. Poet and activist Meng Sung Ka, who helped found freedom of expression activist organization Athan, meaning voice in Burmese, says he thought positive changes would happen when the NLD took power. But Meng Sung Ka says freedom of expression has been in decline the last two years, and Athan has the data to prove it. We can say that freedom of expression is being violated in Myanmar on three sides. One, the number of cases against freedom of expression on social media is around 150. Second, more than 140 people have been sued or charged because of participating in protest demonstration. Third, journalists are also being charged by the government. Based on these facts, we can say that freedom of expression is being violated in Myanmar. A former political prisoner charged to six months in prison under the notorious anti-defamation section of Myanmar's military-era telecommunications law, Meng Song Ka has participated in numerous protests, hearings, and advocacy events since his release in May 2016. But advocacy for the topic faces numerous obstacles, he says. Currently, our country is facing economic problems so that, at the moment, it is very difficult for us to raise education about rights. But for us and politicians and activists, it's okay, but for normal people, it's not okay. On the other hand, our country has experienced the dark age of education. So I think the only things we can do at the moment is to have the campaign raising awareness of human rights to public. But if you want to make it more effective, the government must cooperate and implement a plan in the education system. Iken Myatno, the digital rights program manager at Pandia, a Yangon-based innovation hub, is another one of Myanmar's freedom of expression activists 
taking her advocacy approach from a digital angle, something that's of increasing importance in a country where smartphones and social media use has exploded in recent years. So when we go online, our human rights that is very limited are also left behind. So it's very important. And also on Facebook, when people talk about what they think, when people express their, their opinion, their voice are being shut down. And it is very important that it is not just on the offline space, but also on the online space that we have a space to express what we are thinking, what we are feeling. So I, I just say it is your rights on the internet. E. Kim Yat No, who holds regular digital rights forums and discussions that address the changing landscape of internet use, laws, and rights, says the fight for freedom of expression has to continue. Otherwise, another problem will arise. People can start self-censoring themselves, and that's the worst part of it. Because like, if people start, if people keep talking about it, then it is fine. But if people start self-censoring themselves, and then there is the silence, and people's voice are being shut down, then how are the government going to make sure that they heard us, they hear us, and how are they going to improve the country way forward? That's a sentiment that Yin Yadina the director and co-founder of local civil society organization Free Expression Myanmar, which advocates for freedom of expression on the legislative level, can relate to. This is also fundamental for the democracy. When we want to go to democracy, without the freedom of expression, you cannot go because this is civil plus political rights. Her organization has held workshops with the Myanmar Supreme Court and Attorney General's Office, presenting reports and facts about the rise in cases that they say stifle freedom of expression across the country. The work of these groups isn't being done in vain. Earlier this year, freedom of expression groups came together to lead protests and hold lobbying days in response to amendments proposed to Myanmar's peaceful assembly and procession law, amendments the activists say would further curb freedom of speech. In response, parliamentarians requested more time to debate and review the proposed amendment, citing concerns voiced by the constituencies. The amendment will now be debated in the upcoming parliament session. But demonstrations and advocacy like this, Yin Yadana says, has attracted pushback and even thinly veiled threats from government officials. You know, they threaten me like, you know, uh, you know, it is challenging the court and it is uh, criticizing uh, the decision of the court. You know that we have the uh, contempt of court law or something like that, you know, uh, they threaten me. But she says the struggle is worth it. I mean, of course, we are frustrated sometimes because even though we push the government and the government doesn't move or the government, you know, doesn't show any plan to move. They cannot move now. I know that because, you know, because of the constitution and because of the political portrait, we understand it, but we want to see the plan. So we don't see the plan. So we feel a bit frustrated, but it doesn't mean, you know, we are given up. I mean, we are, we are not given up, so we will go, you know, for to you know, until we get the framework instruction. I mean, perfectly in our hand. That report was brought to you by Victoria Milko in Yangon. Some argue that Bangkok's charm is in its bustling streets and abundance of cheap Thai food. But the authorities want to change that. Street food is rapidly disappearing in the Thai capital. Sidewalks are being cleared of food carts and street hawkers in an attempt to modernize the city and attract investment. The authorities' top-down approach to urban redevelopment has involved displacing thousands whose livelihoods rely on the city's street economy. Adam Bema hits the streets of Bangkok to see the effects of the government's cleanup initiative. Tong Law, 
located along a famous stretch of Sukhumvit Road in Bangkok, is now an upscale dining spot. The venue has undergone rapid transformation over the last year, according to food blogger Chawadi Nualkar. A self-proclaimed glutton, Chawadi is concerned about the city's campaign to clean up and rid certain areas of hawkers. Many of its ubiquitous street food carts are gone. It has even shut down several popular night markets, catering to ties with cheap food. The city calls it returning the pavement to pedestrians, a strategy to contain hawkers by corralling them into designated areas. Sukhumvit is one of the main areas where a lot of the activity, a lot of the cleanup is happening. So a lot of many, many uh, vendors have been uh, kicked out of their, this is considered a prime location to make money. The government is still very concerned with how street food looks, not just to the general public, but to the international community at large. They seem to think of street food as some kind of shameful secret that could not possibly be a draw to anybody outside of the country. In this area, Tonglo has a reputation of being a very upscale area. Was yeah. getting rid of some of the street food part of its transformation into becoming such an upscale yes. neighborhood? Yes, I would say that getting rid of the street food was a way to cement its status as a truly gentrified, upscale neighborhood. Clearing away the, the vendors really kind of was, in, was on brand for them. Unfortunately, the people who make that kind of, that, 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 that kind of image possible, the, the, the janitors, uh, the, the, uh, the guards, the, the people who, who take care of the service at the shops and in cafes, they are left with fewer alternatives. Bangkok is ranked the number one city in the world for street food by CNN. In 2017, Bangkok's Jayfi, often called the Queen of Thai Hawkers, won a Michelin star for her crab omelets and curries. Last year, the Bangkok Metropolitan Administration shut down Sukhumvit and Silom Road night markets, citing complaints. JJ Green Night Market was closed two months ago. The city has even put a street food ban in place on Kaosan Road, the famed backpacker haven known for its cheap eats. While unpopular among many locals, authorities think the move will pay off. Valap Suwandi is the chairman of the advisors to the governor of Bangkok. At presently, the city of Bangkok is so crowded. We have about 11 million people that we have to serve a day. The city hall agree on the, on the position we have received a lot of complaint from the pedestrian. And moreover, a lot of tourists have the, some complaint that the being have to squeeze themselves in a narrow passage. They are not uh, imposing any difficulty to the pedestrian or to the, the, the vehicle drivers. Then it could be a chance. But if they encroaching on the privacy or the right or infringing on the right of the pedestrians or even on the, the, the vehicles, then it cannot be termed as charms. It, is, it could be termed as a somewhat a disordering, which is not right for the city. According to Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing, 17,000 Bangkok hawkers have lost their licenses since 2014. Its research goes on to state that there are 240,000 hawkers in the city. So far, 500 street vending locations have been forced to close.
only 210 street vending locations will remain in Bangkok, leaving about 10,000 official hawkers. Tamasat University's Naruma Nirathron believes the voices and concerns of Thai street vendors must be considered before any more action is taken. Her and other academics have signed a petition asking the city to reconsider the way it regulates hawking. You have to go back to the uh, 2014, where the the BMA started to crack down, not to crack down, to evict street vendors in order to, to return the pavement to the pedestrian. The policy is not realistic, that's one thing. You're talking about the people who have been doing this business for many years. What do you expect them to do? Punsap Tulapan is manager of HomeNet Thailand, a group representing 7,500 informal workers and hawkers. We can say that many huh, are women and many are family. We found out from our study is the two, three generation, you know, like uh, your grandparents huh, used to be a street vendor and then your father and then you. They are also contribute to the economic growth of Thailand. If you think as a, as a policy maker, if you think only a big business that contribute to the country, you make a big mistake. You need to understand your countries. How many are informal workers? A 2016 survey of Bangkok consumers found that 87% purchase street food. 60% of them every single day. Many Thais believe informal work like hawking reduces inequality. A lot of academics will tell you that there's a cycle that happens with street food a lot. Uh, when the economy tends to do well, um, people tend to want to regulate and crack down on street food, seeing it as an eyesore and a hygiene risk. And then when the economy is not doing as well, it turns out, hey, we do need these cheap, reliable, convenient sources of food. One food cart remains on Tong Lo, next to a bank. It's packed with ties, sitting at small plastic tables, eating egg noodles with barbecued pork, a popular dish. Next to it was another street food vendor, but Chawadi says they packed up and left. She isn't sure if they relocated or shut down for good like many others along Sukhumvit Road. This is all a part of the city's effort to clean up Bangkok. It wants to maintain order and improve hygiene. But this move to sanitize the city may come at a cost to Bangkok's identity. It's money down the drain, frankly, and, and human capital down the drain, knowledge down the drain. Uh, I, I find it incredibly wasteful, but only in Bangkok where you can be very confident that something will take its place, right? Something just as good. This report was brought to you by Adam Bema in Bangkok. In October 2017, an earthquake hit Sulawesi in East Indonesia. The earthquake and ensuing tsunami devastated central Sulawesi's capital Palu, claiming the lives of over 2,000 people and displacing countless more. Fewer than two months on, the city is now facing a public health crisis with medical experts warning of the spread of disease. Ian Moss is a Sulawesi-based freelance journalist who covered the aftermath of the disaster. Aisha Llewellyn spoke to Ian over the phone about the devastating earthquake. Ian, thank you so much 
for joining us today. For our listeners, Ian is in Jakarta uh, and I'm here in Medan. But actually, Ian, you live in Gorontalo in Sulawesi, is that right? Yeah, I live in Gorontalo. That's on the, the northernmost, I guess, peninsula of Sulawesi, the island of peninsulas. We're going to talk about the earthquake and tsunami that hit central Sulawesi on the 28th of September. So there was a 7.5, I think it was, magnitude earthquake, and then there was a land tsunami and also a tsunami uh, in the bay off the coast. And you actually ended up going to the area that was worst hit, which was Palu. Um, So when the earthquake happened, I was in Gorontalo, and we definitely felt it. We felt a bit of the waves come over to us. And I was actually in the car to get in a ferry to uh, to go actually to the province for another story. So we heard about the earthquake, got on the ferry, and then lost service. And then when we got service back, we found that almost 400 people had died. There were many different things happening, and there was different scenes, different areas of the city with different people. At the airport, which is pretty damaged, like the, the um, uh, air traffic control tower had collapsed in on itself. I think one person died there. But at the same time, Jacoby arrived, so there was... A whole crew of journalists, and as well as like um, uh, victims of the earthquake and tsunami, who had been kind of pulled from the hospital to, I guess, create a photo op with Shikoi. But then a whole other part of of the story um, was, of course, like these uh, the victims who had already created tents outside their houses, who had maybe not created tents outside their house and. Um, been trying to live in other places. There hadn't been temporary shelters uh, shut up, set up yet. And then there's people fighting for food. There are people still trying to find loved ones, of course. And then there's also one of the biggest stories. It was uh, the massive amount of volunteers, local volunteers, that, um, that really mobilized right after the earthquake. There were a lot of people coming from surrounding areas. There were also a lot of people who were, um, I guess you could call them survivors or victims of the earthquake as well who mobilized themselves, who created groups, who coordinated with people outside to bring in some aid. So you were there on the fifth day, and then you're talking about these photo ops from kind of people in the government and ministers coming down. There's been a lot of talk about whether the aid got to Palu quickly enough. So what did you think about the relief effort on the ground when you were there? So I, I came there for the first, so on Wednesday... And I stayed there about eight days, and I went back to Gorontalo, and then I came back for another week. So I was there in total maybe two weeks. The entire time I was kind of focusing on aid, um, which are stories that were not uh, told very often. One of the first things that's probably good to recognize about the aid efforts, the relief efforts, um, is that there are many different branches of the government and of volunteers who are doing different things, sometimes overlapping, but also coordinating to try not to overlap. So within the government, there were people that were also complaining about other branches of the government being too slow, having too bureaucratic a system to distribute aid efficiently or quickly. So where like the disaster agency, the Ban Pepe, and uh, I guess the army as well, they they had the equipment to go to kind of uh, harder hit areas or areas that were still kind of cut off from landslides. But they weren't doing it very often, apparently. And people in those hard-to-hit areas were not getting really any aid at all. They were complaining about maybe getting one, one liter of rice per family every three, four days, which, which is like nothing, which is kind of... Um, there was one volunteer who described to me as kind of 
like pitiful and not giving them dignity and kind of making beggars out of them. So you were there as a journalist to cover the story, and I imagine that there were many others as well. You talked about local journalists, but I know a lot of foreign media also sent people over. And I think it's interesting that you said that you were there for two weeks. That seems to me like a very long time. What did you think of the media coverage about what happened? Yeah, so actually, I, I mean, I do have a lot of thoughts about this <laughs> because um, I, I stayed at a local journalist office there, the, the AGI, Alliance Journalists Independent, the Independent Journalist Alliance office there, and I uh, talked with a lot of the Indonesian journalists there, and they were covering it in a very different way, which also has its own criticisms as well, in a very different way from the foreign media. One of the, one of the strangest things was that it seemed every story that came out in the, the, the biggest foreign media were, was just about the same story. So it was, maybe they got, they spent maybe a week there, they would get four or five pieces out, and every time you read the piece, it's, the, it's basically the same thing. It's, all right, there's an area in Palu, and, or there's an area in Sigi. Not many people went to Dongala. And there's, there's, a, there's a story, a pretty tragic story of a family, of a, of a child. Um, and then this is what happened, and there are some criticisms of the aid. It, it was kind of strange to see that over and over again, not only between media, but also within the same. I'm not going to make conjecture as to why that is, but um, at least for me, that kind of forced me to go outside of that region. So I went to Dongala, I went to, I went to villages that... Um, yeah, that that were uh, hit immediately with with uh, with the earthquake and hadn't been given aid for a week or ten days. So, do you think that there are going to be political implications now on off the back of Palu that uh, because Indonesia is coming up for a presidential election in two thousand in April two thousand and nineteen? From what you saw on the ground, were people talking about the political implications of this? I think there. Are, there were definitely a lot of political implications thrown around. Discussions talked about um, a lot of a lot of angles as well of um, uh, which politicians used the earthquake in which ways, and of course, think that's always things like that are always going to pop up. And it, it's hard to blame politicians that, in that way too, because if they don't address it, then it's then it's even worse. But they also have like a country to run, for example. But like so, I mean, photo ops in Indonesia, man. Uh, Jokowi was guilty of them. He, he uh, made a trip into Dongala, but it was only like an hour into the district, which is not even close to the most affected areas. He went there and came back and then the same day went back to Jakarta. It's not that productive uh, a thing to do. And when he made those visits, he also didn't give that much uh, advice, aid, effort, or uh, much like that. There were maybe some... Uh, some bags with like the president's logo that were distributed that I saw um, later around the province, but but only like maybe like 10 at a time. I mean, so like giving out bags like that, that's a form of advertisement as well. My understanding is aid organizations can work in Indonesia and distribute aid, foreign aid organizations, but they must partner with either a local branch or a local aid organization here. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, so the international ones would have to have a, a foundation or some group um, of Indonesians to to do most of the work and to uh, to be the registered people on the ground. Right, because that criticism, that's where the criticism came from, I think, that Indonesia was not accepting aid in that 
if if it if they got a donation from someone who didn't have a partner on the ground, then it wouldn't be accepted. But it seems like it's not that they don't want to accept it. It's just like you said, this new regulation means that they just have to go through somebody else. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there there are also criticisms that that could create bureaucratic, uh, lengthy waiting times. But as far as I know, the people I spoke to, it was. Most of those problems were already overcome with those large organizations. I did, however, see a few times that um, some almost independent, kind of independent volunteers who maybe knew someone on the ground came in and had a lot of problems trying to, I, I guess, really like register and get in with approval. Well, I suppose that that's a good thing, though, because like you said, I mean, we saw this a lot in Aceh when the tsunami hit Aceh, where it's where I am in North Sumatra, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, people just parachuted in there at that time from everywhere. I mean, they even had at the at the time a, the science a Scientology group came, oh jeez, and were setting up these healing tents where they would do like healing massage or something. I mean, it was just it was just crazy. It just yeah. literally everyone piled in and were doing things that just really weren't helpful. So I can understand why you were why there's a need to to check who's on the ground and to make sure that they're yeah. not yeah, getting in the way. So are you going to go back to Palu? Um, in the foreseeable future, I, I don't have plans to. But I think um, because the uh, relief efforts have now gone into a transitional phase, which is a more long-term, three-month, six-month, year, even 18-month uh, period, I think there will need to be more stories that come out at, at those times. Thank you so much, Ian. It was really, really illuminating to talk to someone who was actually there. Sure, yeah. All right, thank you. That was Aisha Llewellyn speaking with Ian Moss. Singapore's mainstream media has a complex relationship with the government. Most of the country's traditional media outlets are, directly or indirectly, government-controlled, either through legislation or ownership by the state investment arm. Yet, Singapore's mainstream media continues to downplay curbs on their freedoms and not confront government influence. Kirsten Hahn argues that the more this attitude becomes systemic within the mainstream media, the harder it will be to achieve a free press in Singapore. On the last day of October this year, Yahoo Singapore published a news story that wasn't surprising in its content, but that it was published at all. The article claimed that Li Shuing, a former political editor at the Straits Times, had been transferred to another desk because government officials were unhappy with some of the political coverage under her watch. The Straits Times is the country's only daily English-language general news broadsheet, and is sometimes referred to as Singapore's paper of record. The paper's chief editor, Warren Fernandez, responded swiftly to Yahoo's story. He called the claims fanciful, saying that the transfer was part of a regular reshuffle in the newsroom. It was a defence described by journalism professor and former Straits Times journalist Cherian George as conformism and self-censorship at an advanced level. According to George, industry insiders had known the story about Lee's transfer for months. Instead of struggling to be free, it struggles to be seen as free, George wrote in a blog post about the Straits Times. It's no secret that the press in Singapore is not free. The city-state ranks 151 out of 180 in Reporters Without Borders' latest World Press Freedom Index. 
The government, dominated by the People's Action Party since 1959, gets to have a say in key appointments in mainstream media newsrooms, and the mainstream media usually toes the official line in reporting on Singapore, particularly when it comes to political stories. This issue of government control and self-censorship is open knowledge. This year's Singapore Theatre Festival, organised by a local theatre company, was even headlined by a play written by another former Straits Times journalist about the lack of press freedom in Singapore. This is news to no one, except, apparently, the mainstream media itself. Senior editors in both the mainstream print and broadcast media have repeatedly insisted that they are fair, balanced and objective, and aren't pro-government. The mainstream media's consistent state of denial makes it difficult for any movement for press freedom to take root in Singapore. It's difficult for individual journalists such as myself, or even individual Singaporeans who care about the state of the press, to build any momentum behind a campaign for press freedom in Singapore, when the mainstream media, who employs the largest number of journalists in the country, not only refuses to acknowledge that their freedom is circumscribed, but actively insists that things are fine. In fact, in an environment where the mainstream media might actually be used to take aim at activists and independent news sites, the mainstream press can sometimes themselves become instruments in the suppression of press freedom. This is not an environment that makes it easy to build solidarity within the Singapore press corps. Mainstream media journalists and editors are generally silent about their experiences, but so are foreign outlets, who might figure that issues about denied visas and government refusals to comment on stories are simply not worth their while to bring up in a place like Singapore, especially when there might be bigger fires to fight elsewhere. Where other countries might have press associations or foreign correspondence clubs that speak out against curbs to the freedom of the press, such groups in Singapore also tend to stay quiet. There are, of course, many issues with the media and journalism worldwide, and much of the criticism of the industry is totally warranted. Yet a free, independent press is still a crucial component of a functioning, mature democracy. This is something that Singapore hasn't had for a long time. It's a frustrating situation for Singaporeans who want better reporting, better stories, better information. We deserve better than what we're reading and seeing when we buy a newspaper or watch the evening news. But there's still hope. The fact that this story was leaked to Yahoo Singapore from within the Straits Times suggests that there are people in the mainstream media who have had enough, that they want more public scrutiny and attention on these opaque shenanigans in the newsroom. Singaporeans too can continue to apply pressure on the mainstream media to nudge it out of its Stockholm Syndrome, and on the government for clamping down on our right to free expression and information. It isn't in Singapore's interest for the traditional media either to fail or be turned into government propaganda outlets. But it seems that the fight for press freedom in Singapore will have to be fought to save the press not just from the authorities, but from itself. That was brought to you by Kirsten Han in Singapore. And that's it for this episode. We'd like to thank our contributors, Victoria Milko, Adam Bemmer, Ian Morse, Aisha Llewellyn and Kirsten Han for making this episode possible. Be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda next week, our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com. 
subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa. Thank you.